Heavenly Father, Lord, I, um, I thank you for the joyful worship, Lord. I thank you for, um, for being a God who, uh, who saves us, Lord. And I pray right now that, um, that your word would, uh, would just ring true in our minds and in our hearts and, and cause uh, not only just revelation in our mind, but uh, change in our actions as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so... We have been in a series that we are calling The Road to Recovery, and we've been looking at how to handle the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups that are messing up your life, okay? And uh, this series is to offer a biblical method of handling our faults and, uh, and getting freedom in our lives. So um, we're taking the word recovery, and each week we're looking at a different letter uh, that represents the eight steps that will help you get unstuck out of your habits and, and your hang-ups um, that mess us up. So from the problems, you know, this is, this is to help us with like the specific problems and the difficulties and even like the memories that we have that, um, that just can affect everything we do for the rest of our lives. All right, now the first week we talked about the reality step. And that is um, to realize that we are not God and that we are powerless to control our tendency to do the wrong thing. All right, in reality, in this step, we realize that we have problems that we can't seem to control because we are born into sin, and we have this, um, this just natural tendency to, to do the wrong thing from the beginning. Okay? Now, the next week, we talked about uh, the hope step. Now, this is the, the step where we earnestly believe that God exists that we matter to him, and uh, that he has the power to help us recover. So after we humbly come to this conclusion that we do not have the power to fix our issues, we then acknowledge that there is a higher power who can, all right? And that's, that's what gives us the hope. That's why it's called the hope step. And now, um, last week, Jeff talked about uh, the commitment step. And this is where we realize that it's not enough to just know that we've got problems. It's not enough to know that God can solve the problems. It's, um, we must first start this relationship with him. And we need to take this commitment of our whole lives and our whole wills and say, okay, God, here it is. You know, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And then God can begin to take those problems and work on them. All right, that's, that's kind of what, that's the step that kind of gets this whole thing rolling here. Now, for many Christians, this is about as far as we like to go, okay? And, for the reason, and the reason for that is that these first three steps haven't really required much action. It's all been about our belief and our faith and changing our focus and our perception. And, it's, um, and you know, I think we can make the mistake of saying, okay, I don't have the power and I acknowledge that God exists, or that, that he exists, and that he does have the power to fix me. So here you go, God. Go ahead and fix it. You know, I'll be in the other room napping or whatever. Just, uh, just fix me, please. But this next step shows us that that really isn't how it goes. That's not how God intends it to go, and that's, that's not how you're going to get healing. Step four shows us that we have an essential role to play in our own healing. You know, go figure right? The O in recovery stands for openly examine and confess your faults to God, to yourself, 
and to someone you trust. Step four is going to be the most difficult step so far, and for I, can ima- I will imagine that this is going to be the most difficult step in this entire process. It is the house cleaning step. It has to do with cleaning up your past and letting go of your guilt. It's about gaining a clear conscience and learning to live guilt-free the way God wants you to live. This is the step that's going to separate those who just talk about getting healing from those who really want it and are serious about getting it. So why is this part of the recovery process? You know, why is having to deal with guilt such an important piece? Guilt keeps us stuck in the past. It keeps us from growing and from becoming really all that God wants you to be, all that he created you to be. It's the great hinderer of humanity. If you're going to learn how to really enjoy life, then you've got to learn how to let go of your guilt. See, guilt is like worry in a lot of ways, and they often go hand in hand. Right? They keep you from growing, um, and they bring about a certain level and amount of fear. And, um, and they both keep you from focusing on the present, on the here and now. But where worry stems from hypothetical events in the future, guilt stems from actual events that happened in your past. So in that way, guilt is a much more, has a much more powerful effect on us than worry does. With worry, we can kind of snap out of it and realize, okay, you know, what these things I'm worrying about, you know, they may never happen. It's it probably never will happen. I just I need to move on. But you can't really do that with guilt. You know, the things that that you feel guilty about are they really happened and they really <laughs> they exist in your history. And it affects us for the rest of our lives if we don't deal with it appropriately. And that is why this step must be taken if you want healing. And the truth is that none of us are faultless. We all have sins, we've all made mistakes, so we all have regrets. And we all have things that we wish we could turn back the clock on and say, you know, I wish I would have done that differently. You know, I have one from yesterday, I have one from last week, I have one from first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, (laughs) right? And so on and so forth. But I didn't. I didn't do those things differently. They're there, and they're, they're cemented in my, in my past. And so what ends up happening is you feel bad about it, and then that's when guilt comes into play. And as, as a result of the stupid decisions that we make, we end up carrying this guilt around with us. And sometimes it's consciously, and that's usually right after you did said stupid thing. But a lot of times, and I think most of the time, it's unconsciously we carry it around. For many of us, guilt guides how we behave, and we don't even realize it. It has become a rooted influencer in our life, and, and that affects how we react to everything. We may deny that we have the guilt. All right? We may try to repress it, and we, uh, we may even blame other people for our guilt or try to excuse it or you know, rationalize it, I think, is one thing that we do a lot. But whatever we do with the guilt, we still feel the effect of it. And if you're really going to recover from the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups that are in your life, you've got to learn how to let go of guilt, to get rid of it entirely, and to live with a clear conscience. 
Now, before we talk about how to get rid of that guilt, I want to talk about what guilt actually does to us. All right, and one thing is guilt destroys your confidence. You cannot be a confident person if you have guilt in your life. It makes you feel insecure, and you're always worried and wondering, well, you know, what if somebody finds out? Um, what if somebody really knows the truth about me? What if the secret kind of comes into the light? What's going to happen? And you know, they may not like me, or they may reject me, or you know, divorce me, or whatever it may be. There's all these things that, um, that come up. And as a result, we become afraid of other people, and it destroys our confidence. An interesting story that... Um, that I heard was that Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels, he was actually kind of a prankster when he lived. Okay, and, and he had many connections with very high-level people. And one day he played a prank on five of the most prominent men in England. He sent an anonymous note to them that simply said, all is found out, flee at once. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that? It's just like, oh, this is nice, and a little note, um, oh, okay. Within 24 hours, all five of those men had left the country. <laughs> Can you imagine what kind of secrets they probably thought came out? Guilt robs you of your confidence. It's like a cloud hanging over your head that keeps you from moving on with life because you are afraid that someone other than you and other than God is going to find out. They're going to find out this deep, dark secret. The one that nobody else knows about. You know, and right then, as I was telling that story, as I was saying that, most of you probably had that come to your mind right there. And it's robbing you of your confidence. The other thing that guilt does is it damages all of your relationships. Guilt causes you to respond with people in wrong ways. Okay, it can make you impatient with other people. Guilt can cause you to overreact in anger. And, you know, I've seen that where I'll just like, you know, say something and you know, I'm expecting like a little firecracker pop of a reaction, but it's like a nuke <laughs> that goes off in this person. And often that's motivated by guilt when you get down to it. I mean, I know when I've done it myself, I'm like, why not do that? But the thing is, is that you've tapped on some part of their character where guilt has a deep hold. And sometimes the person themselves don't even know that. Guilt can cause you to spoil people and indulge them. If you're in a relationship, you can say, you know, I feel guilty about this, so I'm going to just get them gifts or indulge them in some way. And... Um, You know, parents do this when they feel guilty and overcompensate by indulging. Instead of, um, you know, instead of addressing the blow-up that uh, you just had with your spouse in front of your kids the other night, you'll go out and you'll buy them a gift and hope that it just all blows over. Guilt can cause you to avoid commitment in a relationship. You only get so close in a relationship, but then no closer. You know, and why do we do that? Why, uh, why won't we let people get close to us? I think guilt is uh, the culprit. So if I have guilt in my life, I will damage all of my relationships. And, it, will, and uh, it makes me continue to respond to people in ways that I don't even understand and that I don't like. Okay, A lot of marriage problems today are caused by 
uh, things that happened prior to their marriage, things that aren't even, you know, the people are just, they've moved on with your life that, that caused that guilt, but it's, it's there, and now it's affecting your marriage with the most important person you have in your life. And it's still happening today. Guilt keeps you stuck in the past. Now, we talked about this a little bit already. You know, guilt keeps you focused on the past. And living with guilt is like driving while only looking in the rearview mirror. You, know, you can't go through life any more successfully than you can drive from California to Virginia while only staring in the rearview mirror. Those mistakes and experiences in your life are there to give you a perspective and a lesson, but you don't constantly look at them. All right, and if you're always looking in a rearview mirror, then you never get ahead. And what that guilt does is it tends to play in your mind over and over and over the things that you wish you could have done, but you're never going to change. You know, it can't change. Guilt cannot change the past any more than worry can change the future. It just makes today miserable. And on top of all of that, guilt makes you sick. Now, this is pretty interesting. It says that uh, UCLA did a study a while back where they had two groups of students, and each group wrote about experiences that they had in their life. All right? One wrote about just kind of neutral experiences, one that didn't really affect them for better or for worse or anything. They just happened. All right? um, but then the other group of students wrote about experiences in their life where guilt and shame became involved, and it actually... Um, um, where they felt that they were at fault, okay? And neither group really showed immediate physical differences after the test, but they took blood tests from each group, and it showed that the group that wrote about the experiences that caused them guilt had an increase in a specific protein that secretes when there's disease in the body. So as they were reliving this in their mind and writing about it on paper, their body literally thought that there was a disease in them. It really brings a verse in Psalm 32 to life that says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. King David wrote those words. And I think the sin that David is referring to here is the one that he tried to keep secret the most. And that's his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba in which he not only impregnated her, but then ensured that her husband would be killed in battle. And when sin is kept in the dark, guilt will fester and literally kill you, or begin to. Now, I don't think I need to convince you anymore that living with guilt is a bad thing. Okay? Now, how do we get rid of it? I think the, the procedure is, as usual, is one that's kind of simple, but it's very difficult, and it requires a lot of courage. And uh, David, King David, actually, I think, sums up three of the four steps in Psalm 32, that same Psalm, verse 5. Okay? And that says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, step one is to take a personal moral inventory. It has to do with the first part. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. This step means that you get by yourself, you grab a pencil and a notepad, and you say, sit down, and you say, what is wrong with me? 
All right, what are these things that I am guilty about? What are the faults in my life that I need changing? This is the get the measurements of that plank that's sticking out of your eye verse or step. Ask God to help you out. Ask him to, to bring it to your mind. You know, I don't, some of them probably will surprise you. What are the things that I both consciously and unconsciously feel guilty about? And he will answer you. Lamentations 3 verse 40 says, Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. God says that we need to examine our lives and then ask him to help us. Okay, return back to him. In Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. You think that's written without expecting a response? You know, Lord, I'm just sitting here. I've got my pen and my paper, maybe some coffee and probably a ton of tissues. Just bring it to mind. And when you do this, there are a few guidelines that you kind of need to follow, okay? So you have to take your time. All right? You can't rush this. It's, this is a process, and it's not a quick one. So don't try to just blow through this step. And you've got to be honest. You've got to be brutally honest. And this doesn't work unless, unless you are completely honest with yourself. And the last thing is you've got to be specific, and this is why it's important to write it out. You know, writing out this inventory um, forces you to be specific. You can't just think about these things. You know, you've been doing that your whole life, so that's not helping. Thoughts disentangle themselves when they pass through the lips and through the fingertips. All right, if you can't say it or put it down in writing, then it's still probably pretty vague. You can't just say, you know, God, I've blown it in life. All right. We all have done that. We all know that. In fact, just make that the title of your paper. Okay? <laughs> I've Blown It in Life by Mark Flowers. You know, this will help you be able to face the specific problems in your life. Now, the second step after you take that inventory is to accept responsibility for your faults. All right? And David said, I, will, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You know, the great holdup and our healing is ourselves. David said, I will acknowledge my sin before the Lord. Okay, this, starts this, start, this step starts with us just admitting, okay? It's just saying, I'm the problem. Don't keep saying, you know, if I just change my relationship, or if I change my job, or if I change my, you know, where I live, if I move to another state, it'll all get better. You know, because... In every one of those situations, you're there, and you're the problem. You know, so we need to accept, accept responsibility for our faults. You don't rationalize them. Right? Don't say, well, you know, it happened a long time ago, or it's accepted now. You know, everybody's doing it. It's just a stage in my life, or um, you know, whatever way you can, you, can, uh, you can rationalize it. You know, everybody does it. And you don't minimize them. Don't just say it's no big deal, okay? If it's no big deal, then you want to still remember it after 20 years, and it still wouldn't be there, right? Don't, don't fool yourself there. And lastly, don't blame others. 
When you write out this inventory for everything that you write out, don't put someone else's name next to each one. Okay? Now, I don't want to act like I'm just making light of instances when we are truly hurt by another person. Okay, but the truth is that we will still be held accountable for the way that we react, the way that we respond, and the way that we operate after those hurts occur in our life. Okay, no matter how deep they are. So you make a moral inventory and then you look at that list and you say, yep, that's me. This makes sense. You know, I accept responsibility for these faults. And then the last part is to ask God for forgiveness. And the last part of that psalm said, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1.9 says, if we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable. He forgives our sin and makes us thoroughly clean from all that is evil. If we freely admit it, God will forgive us. There is no need to beg or bargain or bribe. You know, that would just be insulting to God. God is ready and he is eager to forgive you. And all you need to do is believe that he will. When you acknowledge and own up to your own faults and sins, God is found utterly reliable to forgive you and cleanse you from all that is evil. Now the word that is used in 1 John 1.9 for admit literally means to speak the same. Okay, that means that you speak the same thing about the items that are on your list that God says. It means that you are agreeing with God that what he says about your faults is true. First, that they are wrong and that they are sinful. Okay? But second, that they are forgiven. All right? No matter how egregious that list may be. If you say, you know, if you, and hearing that, you may, you may say, well, it just doesn't seem fair. You know, I, there's so much wrong that's here. Somebody has to pay for, you know, all the wrong that's in my life. And I would say, Someone has. His name is Jesus. Okay? And that very list that you're writing out is why he went to the cross. No matter how deep the stain of your sin is, I can take it out and make it clean as freshly fallen snow. And just so you're not confused, that's God saying that. Steps one through three are a time of intimate and private reflection between you and God. And some of you know that right now, I'm going through this Celebrate Recovery process, okay, in this, this program. And, and I haven't come to this part yet. You know, we, we men like to ramble. But, uh, so we haven't gotten to, to this step yet. But, um, you know, I'm not looking forward to it. Because I've done these steps before, I just didn't really realize it at the time. It was about five years ago, and it was right when I had become a Christian. All right, and I started coming to this church when we were meeting in the other building. And, and I asked Jeff if I could share my testimony to this church. And a, a campus pastor, I was going to VCU at the time, and a campus pastor had given me the code to the building that he held his small group in on VCU's campus. So every night, you know, I would come home from work and just get ready, and, and I would leave the home that I was staying in with my friends, and um, 
I would have my journal and my pen in hand, and I would go to this building, all right? And I would just write out my life leading up to my salvation. And sometimes I couldn't even make it through a paragraph. Now, sharing your testimony is not the same thing as creating a moral inventory. Um, but when writing out my testimony, it was the first time that I had really confronted the sins in my life. It was the first time I took this inventory and that process of revisiting the experiences that affected my whole course of life helped me develop, you know, and thankfully early on in my relationship with God, it helped me develop an understanding not only of my own sin and what God thinks of it, but also God's immeasurable grace and mercy that he had on me and on everyone else. But I need to go through this process again because while I understood the importance of these first three steps, creating the inventory, accepting it, and then accepting forgiveness from God, there's a fourth step that, you know, just recently over the past year or so, or, or you know, maybe even two years, I guess, I've, I've come to appreciate and walk it out. And that's the fourth step, to admit your faults to another person. Okay, up until this point, it's, it's you and God, it's you and God, and, and you know, you're dealing with it, you know his forgiveness, you know his grace, or you know, sometimes maybe you're, you're figuring that out, you know, you're starting to accept that, maybe you don't know that, and so you still need to get to that point, but, but God says that this step is absolutely essential for your true recovery. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. All right, listen, listen to the wording there. Confess to one another so that you may be healed. God says, you want healing? Get others involved. But why? You know, why, do we need to, why do we need to drag another person into this? Why can't it just be I admit this to God and I pray about it? You know, why this requirement to tell someone else? Well, the reason being is that the root of our problem is relational. Okay, we lie to each other, we're dishonest with one another, we steal and we cheat and we wear these masks and we pretend that we have it all together to one another when really we don't. <laughs> this, this game we play isolates us from each other and it prevents intimacy. You know, that same intimacy that Harry was just talking about. She told me that that was kind of her word, was about focusing on, on just being real with one another. It's like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. We end up living with shame, and it makes us insecure, and we think, you know, if only, or if they really knew the truth about me, dot, dot, dot. And I think the sad thing is that we get this mentality from two sources. One is Satan. Okay, Satan wants you ridden with guilt. And so he will try to keep those secrets in the dark for as long as he can, whether he has to play to your pride, you know, well, you, know, you may lose your influence over that person or you're in that position, you can't do that, or whatever that pride may be, or to your shame. You know, they may be the same thing, but either way, Satan's going to want you to keep those secrets in the dark. And the second is the fear that comes from the church's tendency to shoot our wounded. For some reason... We have a tendency to be shocked that a fallen humanity sins, right? Even Christians. And we, can, and we confuse forgiveness with approval. And so we just choose to ostracize the offender 
and you know, as like a knee-jerk reaction. And many of you have seen it in your biological families, so you just kind of project that onto the church as well. You know, oh, well, I saw where my cousin or my, my brother or my sister or my father, whatever it may be, that I saw how he was treated in my family, so my church family must be the same, and you can just project that. In the same way we project the way we feel about viewing God as Father from our own relationship with our own Father. And so, but let's look at what the truth is. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You will not prosper on your own on this road to recovery. And neither will you find shock and condemnation when you confess to the right person. Okay? On the contrary, this verse says that you will find compassion. Because through that confession, you realize that everybody has problems. You know? All have sinned. Hear it a thousand times, but you may actually get it this time. And often those problems and those sins are the same ones that you have. And you just have to admit it to one other person, right? You don't need more than one. You don't need to post it on your Facebook account or anything or Twitter or whatever. Goodness, please don't. You know, but you need one other person that you can be totally honest with. And you know, if you tell, <laughs> telling the wrong person can actually be big trouble for you. All right? It can lead you um, down a bad road. You have to kind of discriminate a little bit here. Tell someone trustworthy. You know, someone who is not only is mature enough to hear what you have to share, but understands the importance of it. Right? I'm, I don't want to be telling somebody this deep hurt in my life and have them be like, uh-huh, man, that stinks, whatever. Yeah. Send. Or Candy Crush or whatever. I don't know. It's like, oh, thanks, glad you care. All right, and lastly, you want someone who can convey the grace and mercy of God and reflect that forgiveness back to you. And this is important, okay? You want someone who knows the Lord and understands that we are to be imitators of him, okay? Imitators not of his wrath and judgment, that's for him, okay? But imitators of his compassion and his grace. And this is important for us men to remember because we like to fix things, right? You know, somebody comes to us with a problem, we're like, you analyze, analyze, uh, this is the quickest solution to fix it here, you know? And... But when someone comes to you with, a, with one of these hurts or secrets or uh, the source of lifelong guilt, you don't necessarily need to immediately direct that person. You know, that's not really what they need right then. It's, it, it will, and it should come eventually for you know, healing to come, but, but timing is important in any healing process, whether it be physical or spiritual. And this is a time of listening and of grace, and you, know, you want somebody who will bring this proverb to life, and that can only be someone who meets these criteria. You know, and that's, that's where this can be a truth. So identify this person, you know, buy them lunch, show them your moral inventory. Sit down with them and say, I need someone to listen to me and, and listen to me take this fourth step in my recovery. You know, here are some things that are wrong with my life, and this is what I've done, and this is how I felt, you know. Then after you reveal those specific secrets, God will begin to bring healing into your life. 
the relief and the peace that's been eluding you will begin to manifest in your life. Because what once was in darkness is now in the light. Now remember, this is a process. And in many cases, there are chemical and pathological ties that can only be broken with time, okay? And some of these hang-ups, unless God brings healing instantly. You know, for some of my healing, it did come instantly. For others, it didn't. So don't get discouraged if change doesn't come immediately. Accept God's forgiveness and forgive yourself. God forgives instantly, freely, and completely. And the longer it takes for you to accept that, the longer it'll take for you to receive your healing. It doesn't matter what the expectations were from your parents or your spouse or your mentor, your coach, your kids, whatever it may be, or most importantly, the expectations you had from yourself. You know, all of us are in the same boat here. The title of all of our inventories are, is I've blown it in life, right? Those experiences in your life have brought guilt and shame, that have brought guilt and shame are over and done. So what are you going to do about it? The phrase point of no return is an expression that originated in air navigation that refers to the point on a flight at which the plane cannot return to the airfield from which it took off. Okay, the plane reaches a point where it has burned up too much fuel and has to commit to push through to its destination. This step in the recovery process is the point at which those who really want that healing will say, or who don't really want that healing, will say, you know, well, this was a good ride. You know, I see that I'm sinful. I committed my life to God. I've got my salvation. I've got the certificate. But now I think I'll just go back before this gets too deep. And if that ends up happening, well, then that's fine. You know, just keep coming back because God just needs to work on you a little bit more. You just need to sit in that pain a little bit longer. And once you're ready, God will bring you back to this step, I promise. But don't prolong this thing. Don't procrastinate. Come clean and get clean. Because no matter how deep the stain of your sin is, he can take it out and make it clean as freshly fallen snow. We can, he can make us clean, but we have to do it the way that he tells us to. Amen? All right. Now, every week we've been sharing a testimony of someone who has gone through the Celebrate Recovery program and in the past and how it's had their effect on their life. And uh, today is the story of a young woman named Lori. And she was addicted to alcohol. She was, uh, she was addicted to relationship dependency and a, and a whole ton of different uh, drugs and narcotics. And... Um, and so she kind of tells that in the first, first part of it, so I'm just telling you now. But after a series of events, Lori gave her life over to God and became a Christian. But as you can imagine, her life didn't just instantly become fixed. All right? She had gone through the first three steps of this uh, recovery program, but now she was at the O, and this is where we pick up in her story. Although I now had Jesus Christ to guide me, I still held my life in my own hands. I soon met Mike, and he was different from anyone I had dated. 
He was smart, kind, and ambitious. We began attending church together, and although we were Christians, we did not commit all areas of our life to God. As a result, I became pregnant. Mike and I moved in together. My daughter Cassie was born shortly after my 20th birthday. We loved her so much, and Mike was a wonderful father. But one night, he brought some pot home from work. Although I had not used in over a year, my addiction picked up right where it left off. My relationship with Mike began to suffer, and I began obsessing once again about men. I thought getting married would cure everything, but it did not. Eighteen months after we got married, Mike and I agreed to separate and divorce. At this point, my using became much worse. I had to smoke pot all day just to function. I drank alcohol mixed with painkillers every night until I passed out. I began having chronic kidney infections, and I engaged in meaningless relationships based solely on sex and partying. And by 23 years of age, I was a blackout drinker. The week before Christmas, after putting my daughter down for her nap, I went into the bathroom to get high. And I heard a clear, distinct voice say, do you really want to keep living this way? I cried out, no, Lord, but I can't stop. God, please help me. The following day, I attended the Christmas Eve service alone at Saddleback Church, and I cried through the entire service, and I rededicated my life to Christ, all of my life. I felt the most incredible peace I have ever felt in my life. After attending the Christmas service, I walked out to celebrate recovery to the information table. Pastor John was working the table, and I quickly grabbed some information, never making eye contact with him because I was so scared. <laughs> The following Friday night, I attended my first Celebrate Recovery meeting. The warmth in the room was contagious. I felt so comfortable. When I walked into the women's chemical dependence group, there was only one woman sitting there. And although there were many open chairs, I sat right next to her. Tina and I bonded right from the beginning. When it came my turn to share, I got about five words out before I started bawling. This was the first time I had ever said the words out loud that I was an alcoholic and an addict. I felt a tremendous burden had been lifted from me. To speak these words and look around the room into the eyes of love and understanding was truly incredible. It was at this point that God began to change my heart, mind, and soul. I was fully committed to working the 12 steps. I bought the tools of the program, the Life Recovery Bible, and the workbooks, and joined a Tuesday night step study meeting. As I worked through the steps, the pain from my past began to overwhelm me. I never dealt with any of these feelings before. I had always numbed them with drugs and alcohol. I sought help from a wonderful Christian counselor. It was through these counseling sessions, coupled with the writing of my fourth step, that I began to see the pattern of unhealthy relationships that I had with men. I moved past the point of seeing myself as the ultimate victim to seeing that I did have a significant part in the pain and abuse I adored, endured. I saw how my obsessive thinking clouded my perception on seeing a man for who he truly was. I believed that if a man called me ten times a day, demanded to always know my whereabouts at all times, and even went so far as stalking me, that he must truly care for me. <laughs> okay, not. <laughs> After all, there was still that little girl inside of me that desperately wanted attention, and I did confuse sex for love. Approximately nine months into my recovery, God began to lead me into service. I attended our midweek service where Pastor Tom was preaching on the woman at the well. He spoke on how Jesus loved this woman and how he longed to bring healing to her. It touched my heart in such a mighty way. 
God laid on my heart the need for a group for women who struggled like myself. A friend gave me the book Addicted to Love by Stephen Arterburn to read. It was then that a light went on inside of me. I was amazed to find out that I was not the only one that struggled with complete, oppressive, obsessive thinking towards people. I knew in a church our size there had to be at least one other woman out there. <laughs> with faith and a bit of fear, I approached Pastor John about starting the Love and Relationship Addiction Group. He gave me complete support and told me my testimony would be the perfect way to kick off my group. <laughs> I was terrified. What if no one related? I was expecting some confused looks and possibly some sympathy applause. That's not what happened. I received so much support and many people, both men and women, told me that they related. So much shame was dispelled that night. Giving my testimony was one of the greatest healing experiences of my life. The same night my group began, and when I walked into the room, I saw over 10 women sitting there. I walked out, and then I ran to the bathroom. <laughs> Cowering in a stall very close to hyperventilating, I thought, there is no way I can leave this group. <laughs> then, I, <laughs> then I remembered the words that Carrie Wood had spoken to me. Start the group because you need to be there. Still to this day, when I feel insecure or overwhelmed with my leadership responsibilities, I remember her encouraging role, words. The group has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. I, alongside of so many brave women, have received much healing. The women that God has brought to this group are amazing. I feel such a privilege to be a part of this safe place that God has given us to share at a level of complete honesty. To see women come out of years of bondage into the place of grace, into the grace of God, and to be embraced by the body of Christ, there is no place I would rather be on a Friday night. I have grown to love these ladies and my accountability team so deeply. They know everything about me, including my character defects, yet still love me. They have been there. They've been there for me in all aspects of my life. In February of this year, I began dating for the first time in over five years. This man seemed to be the perfect guy based on the things he shared with me. This should have been my first red flag. <laughs> he was a Christian who served in ministry, and he spoke all the words I wanted to hear. I started to develop strong feelings for him. My wise sponsor gave me some very sound advice. Listen to his actions and not to his words. It soon became obvious that this man's talk did not match his walk. And I knew I needed to end the relationship, but I was struggling with old behavior and feelings. So I looked to my Celebrate Recovery accountability team. At a weekend retreat, I got on my knees with my friend Carrie and asked that God's will be done. I felt God's peace and knew I was doing the right thing by ending the relationship. I shared openly with my group about my emotional pain. It is such a blessing to have a place to share honestly about my struggles and to have friends that are completely committed to God in all areas. God has been faithful to bring good out of this situation. He continues to bring me back to a place of humility and dependence on Him. I'm just so grateful for this program and for the people who walk this path beside me. And most of all, for my higher power, Jesus Christ. He has strengthened my commitment to serve other women with my struggles and my, com my commitment to purity. By the grace of God, I, I have obtained five and a half years of sobriety from drugs and alcohol.
It is also so healing for me to give my daughter the things that my parents did not have the capacity to give me, to, just to be emotionally available to her. Living on life's terms can be hard. God never promised us that it would be easy. God truly does work all things for good for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would like to end with my favorite scripture, Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. Yet there is one ray of hope. His compassion never ends. It is only the Lord's mercies that have kept us from complete destruction. Great is his faithfulness. His loving kindness begins afresh each day. My soul claims the Lord as my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Thank you for letting me share. So I ask you the same uh, question that Lori heard God ask her. Do you really want to keep living this way? You know, when she brought her sin out into the light, did she get condemnation or did she get compassion? So are you ready to be free from the guilt and get serious about your healing? And could those uh, who are released to pray please line up if you don't mind. Just be available. So, um, you know, this is just our closing. If you, if you still want to come up and get communion, uh, you can. And he's going to lead us into uh, just our ministry time. Um, if you want to come and get prayer, Come and get prayer, please. Uh, but you know, uh, this is this is going to be this step is a very serious one that that requires a lot of prayer and a lot of thought, and and it's not one to just to just jump right into immediately. You know, while it should be done quickly, it, it or as quick as you can, it also needs to be taken with with care. And so, um, so I encourage. You know, you to, to get prayer if you feel that you're ready to take this step. Get prayer on as to who that person should be or, or how to, to create this inventory. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, Lord, I thank you that you are um, a ray of hope. And that the, uh, the weight and the guilt of our sins does not have to be ours to live with, Lord. But, uh, but in fact, you want us to be free from it, Lord. And Lord, we all want to be used by you. We all want to be, uh, be just a soldier in your, in your uh, kingdom army, Lord. But, but help us to learn from, uh, from Lori's experience and, and see how, how you used her the moment she started dealing with this guilt and dealing with this, uh, just this, this unnecessary weight. Lord, don't let us insult or, or undermine the work that you did on the cross by carrying around what we gave to you. But Lord, help us to, uh, to first and foremost see and, and experience your forgiveness and your grace and mercy and then, then also to have that, that same forgiveness of ourselves. But Lord, just bring into our lives those trusted, uh, those that we can trust, Lord, so that we can, we can be relational as you want us to be. Lord, as you intended, because you don't want us to walk through this alone. In fact, you tell us we cannot get healing unless we do bring others in. 
So Lord, help us to, to just come clean, Lord. We, we come clean about the things that we're willing to, but there are, there are things in our lives, I know you brought it to our minds, Lord, that we, that we have not told anybody. And those are the things that are hindering us. So give us the courage and the power, Lord, to walk that out now. In the name of Jesus, amen.